we will hit a place where software writes software. And that's pushback I've heard too, is we don't need to teach all kids to code because, you know, robots will write code in the future. And it's true, but they'll never empathize, which is a big part of the design thinking process. And so there will always be a human part of this process, right? And, and sure, software will write software, but we still need to transition to that period. And we still need to create um, critical thinkers. It's not about coding. It's about problem solving. Um, it's larger than that. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of the Start Ed Up podcast. Member of the Education Podcast Network. Today, I'm excited because I have on Brian Aspinall. Brian is author of Codebreaker. He's a keynote speaker. He's an educator. He's an avid coder. What he is not is relying on the status quo to take care of itself. Therefore, Brian's on this mission to get uh, more understanding of coding and into the hands of uh, our students. This isn't, though, the whole talk of coding is important. He gets into the, as you heard from the top of the show, some of the more interesting facets of it. Um, he is really passionate about it, and it shows whether he's you know out there talking about it on the lecture circuit or in the classroom, he's got quite a bit of credibility. So for these reasons, I love, love this episode. Highly, take a, highly recommend that you take a look at his website, brianaspelnall.com. His you know, book, Codebreaker, is on Amazon. All those are great resources. But um, you know, take a listen to this and then understand why he thinks it's so important that we start looking to these uh, things now and start getting our students more interested on the coding side, not just as a skill, but also as a way of thinking. All right. The reason why we find people like Brian is because you guys are reaching out to us on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash start it up. I'm also getting a lot of DMs. Believe me, guys, this is gold to us. This is how we find great guests like Brian. So keep them coming. I, seriously, I cannot tell you how important it is that that is our growth is because of you guys. You guys are referring the podcast. You guys are tweeting about it, putting it on Facebook, and that is how we grow. And we find great guests because in a lot of cases, you guys are making email introductions to our future guests. So not lost on us. We sincerely appreciate it. All right, enough gabbing from me. I think you're going to love this one. Get out the pen. Let's start taking some notes and welcome Mr. Brian Aspinall. All right. So now I'm excited to bring on Brian Aspinall to the show. Brian, thanks for being on. Don, thank you so much for having me here on this beautiful Friday. I know. It's uh, my favorite time of the year. And we're on the verge. And mind you, by the time this airs, ISD will have either have been or been going on. But uh, you, you've been um, kind of pounding the pavement, so to speak, uh, on some of the ISTE standards. I mean, we've been, we've been talking about the standards and the Common Core and all this other stuff, but uh, you've been really focusing in on ISTE standards and, and kids and coding. Um, tell us a little bit about your mission and then also your book, Codebreaker. Yeah, absolutely. So up here in uh, Ontario, Canada, we've had a, a big focus on, of course, math education, but through an inquiry lens. And we have what's called learning skills uh, in Ontario that we actually report on uh, on the front page of a report card. And they align themselves, those soft skills, those 21st century uh, fluencies like critical thinking. I mean, they align themselves so nicely to the ISTE standards that it just made sense to uh, reframe the whole coding piece uh, around that because we're in a, an interesting time, I think, where assessment and evaluation are changing. We're moving away from that standardization piece, putting kids in the sandbox uh, with programs like Scratch, you know, that naturally differentiate and scaffold uh, content for kids. So 
um, I thought it was important. It's an important space and important time to sort of pull all of this together. And uh, Codebreaker was actually born uh, based on a project when I was in grad school. And it sort of evolved into this, this bigger piece now that I've, I have certainly taken on the road, um, trying to support educators, not just here in Ontario, but, you know, across the country of Canada and, and internationally. Um, our federal government just spent $50 million uh, on the not-for-profit space to help introduce coding and computational thinking to kids. So we all recognize that there's definitely a need for it. Um, of course, that came on the, the back of the White House announcement. I think $300 million or something last year. Uh, that you folks are spending on computer science education. So just looking at those soft skills, you know, how do we facilitate critical thinking? How do we encourage risk-taking in a system in which failure is punished? How do we redefine what it means to fail at school? Um, we're moving away from seeing math as a score out of 10, you know, based on a quantity of correct answers. And we're looking more at the process of, of math. And it aligns very nicely to the coding STEM computer science space. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because... Um sometimes people hear coding or computer science and they think of coding for the sake of coding and computer science for the sake of computer science. Probably your most um, popular blog, you had 10 reasons kids should learn how to code. And I, I loved it because again, it wasn't like kids should learn how to code because we all need to be coders. That wasn't your argument at all. And even in your earlier statement, you said computational thinking. Um, I, I love that because now um, I think, more teachers might want to come to the table when it comes to coding. So I, we don't necessarily need to go down all 10 reasons, um, but I, I did enjoy them in the sense that, you know, you talk about math skills, writing skills, creativity, confidence, organization. This through your top five. If there's an art teacher, an English teacher out there right now going, huh, how does coding help with their writing skills or their confidence, or their, well, I, you can make the organization really easily, but, you know, how does, how does coding improve their writing, creativity, or confidence? Yeah, I mean, to quote Mitch Resnick, the head of Scratch Start at MIT, in his TED Talk, he talks about the idea of um, learning to read so we can read to learn, and, and coding is no different. And just, just to go back a step there, when you talked about coding and computer science, like uh, telescopes to astronomy, coding is more of a tool uh, involved in uh, the larger picture of what computer science is. But yes, definitely. I mean, we put the narrative of industry aside because we, in education, we're always preparing kids for the next, right? Whether it's the next grade, whether it's high school, whether it's post-secondary or, or whether it's industry. So we have to just remove that because reading and writing and math skills, you know, we need those to prepare kids for any kind of industry moving forward too. Um, so I use coding uh, more of a causation, I guess, to create those problem solvers who then have uh, adaptable skills to other subject areas, whether it's their math class or their English class, or again, like you said, organization, going back to the soft skills and, and the ISTE standards. Yeah, and, and there's been more and more evidence of this and, and how it is. Although I, I will say, I'll go back to a discussion I had Gosh, it may have been at, no, it was, a, it was another conference, but there was this guy from uh, Carnegie Mellon, top five program for sure. And he was talking about their wanting and maybe encouraging more computer science teachers to co-teach with English teachers or people that teach to humanities. And I was like, really? Why is that? And he says, well, number one, <laughs> it'd be awesome because the, the English teacher might start looking at things through a new lens and, you know, 
we're great learners and teachers at the same time. And he says, but number two, computer science uh, is moving so fast that we might need to have talks of ethics as well. He says, because we're in that age and dating right now of just because you can, should you? And uh, I thought that was an interesting perspective. I know it's a little bit of a sidetrack, but your opinions or thoughts on that? No, I completely agree 100%. Um, in the narrative of pre- preparing kids for the future, I mean, we're a few short years from the Internet of Things uh, era, right? There's no such thing as off and away anymore when there are more devices connected to the Internet than people. And so it's really important to um, it, it prepare. I don't know if prepare is the right word, but encourage our young people to be mindful of the data that's being tracked around them with regards to ethics, of course, because, you know, uh, as you know, everything that kids do in the next couple of years is going to be tracked and marketed and sold. So the ethical piece is incredibly important, particularly, and again, I'm going back to the ISTE standards when we talk about digital citizenship in the 21st century. And, you know, what does that mean? Yeah. And, and so, <laughs> but his point, though, on the ethics side, I thought was interesting, too, because, um, yeah. I, I don't want to say at times I get frightened, but I think that sometimes we're falling in love with the technology that's moving so fast that um, <laughs> an English or humanities teacher pressing the pause button a little bit for us to think about the long-term ramifications is kind of cool. Yeah, I think the pushback, positive discourse, right? It's everything in moderation. I think it's, we're, we're if you look at education in general, I mean, 10 years ago, we headed into the, the YouTube social media space. And the first thing we did in schools was lock all that down because we weren't sure how to navigate. That. Oh, good point. Yes. I think we're in, you know, version 2.0 of that uh, with Internet of Things coming on the horizon. We have to uh, just just be prepared. There's a lot of liability at stake and a lot of responsibility and a lot of important decisions are going to have to be made. Yeah, again, yeah, try not to fall down that wormhole too much. But when people are hearing you, and so I may have some people going, okay, Internet of Things, explain that. Some people may say, oh yeah, Internet of Things. In your most succinct way, um, Internet of Things is... Uh, Internet of Things is the idea that everyday household objects are connected to the internet. So, you know, currently you can open your garage door using your phone. Uh, you can unlock your front door using your phone. But in the next couple of years, you know, your fridge will be connected to Wi-Fi. And it'll be able to tell you, you know, how many pickles you have left in the jar because it tracks how many times you've pulled the jar out of your fridge. Yeah, and I've, we had on the show a guy that owned an Internet of Things company. And, and it was, he saw it as just awesome. Cause I, you know, I talked to him, like, are we heading towards Wally? And, uh, it was an interesting discussion. He yeah. had a, he had a much more optimistic view of it than, than I think some people do, but, uh, yeah, I'm I sorry, know, go ahead. I know we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but I did, I heard a quote, um, from a fellow at Microsoft that said those concerned with privacy. And then of course, in my mind, that's all parents and all educators, those concerned with privacy, will be disadvantaged by the Internet of, Internet of Things era with regards to efficiency. Sorry, I slipped away. <clears throat> Sorry, coughing fit. No, of course. <clears throat> no, I, I, I agree with all those things. I just, um, we're going to transition because this could do, quickly spiral out of control for a uh, what to be scared of in the future. But, um, but at the same time, you know, in, in our best attempt to prepare kids for the future, a future that we're like, it's, it's happening so fast. We have, we're having a hard time predicting it. It just once again, goes back to your point of the importance of preparing them. Um, 
it's, it's like I always say to educators, you know, it, it, kids, it, they don't know if they like broccoli until they try it. So it's about exposure for me um, as anything else, you know, uh, seeing coding as a tool for learning, um, but seeing computer science as a, a bit of a mandatory course in, in certain grade levels, I think would be incredibly important, just strictly from that exposure uh, stepping point. I've had students in my class over the years who just, that was such a space that made them so confident and successful. They expressed not feeling that way at school um, leading up to that point. Yeah. So again, going back to some teachers that may not be computer science teachers, um, tell me how you would integrate or kind of almost sneak in coding or coding concepts within like social studies. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. So if we look at social studies, I'm going to, I'll pick on history because that seems to be a subject area that um, I guess you wouldn't expect to, to see coding, for example. Coding could be a space where you could bring, say, a, a timeline to life. You can recount events that happened. We'll talk about the War of 1812 because that's been pretty popular in the media as of late. Um, but you could have students create simulators and, and interactive web videos and interactive timelines that you can engage with, almost like they're building their own manipulatives or uh, a new way to demonstrate their thinking and learning about what actually happened during the War of 1812. Uh, and so they could, it's, it's kind of like a layered cake. They can take coding as far as they want to create content in that space to then share with the audience what they know of the War of 1812, whether it be food, culture, what happened, why things happened, and opinions about uh, what has happened. Rather than always doing um, a more traditional, say, poster or, or written essay or, or you know, those, those more traditional kinds of projects, integrating coding is more of a supplement to what we already do so well, and you can bring those interactive posters to life. Wow. Wow, and, and I, mm, that is cool. I, so, I remember one of the more uh, popular things that you'd put out there recently was the the coding of uh, rock paper scissors. How and obviously, I've seen people give you feedback that they're trying it. What are some of the things you've seen? Well, I guess one kind of explain to people what that is, um, and then two, what have you seen come out of that? That's a really, really. I'm really passionate about the rock, paper, scissors project because it was a student's idea a few years back. My grade seven and eight curriculum here in Ontario has me teaching experimental probability. So the results of flipping a coin and if you flip the coin 10 times, well, what would your data set look like? And then, you know, graph mean, median and mode, things like that. Um, but also to teach theoretical probability in that the more times you flip the coin, the more likely the results are to get to 50, 50. It's called the law of large numbers as you move into secondary math. And uh, I, I had a lesson that was going absolutely terribly. I was expecting kids to flip a coin 50 times and I wanted to have a conversation about the results after the fact, anticipating that most data sets would be close to 50-50, but it flopped. It was, a, it was a terrible lesson. At the end of the period, a student approached me and said, I'm going to build you an app um, so that, that might help you teach that a bit better next year. And he wasn't trying to be rude. He was really trying to be helpful. So he actually created a simulator on Scratch that demonstrates um, a coin flipper by choosing a random number. There's built-in functions in, in coding applications that allow you to choose random numbers specified by a range. So he had set, he had created a function to pick a random number between zero and one, and he had a, applied zero to mean heads and apply one to mean tails. But he threw this thing in a loop and uh, he added a turbo button. So when you click this turbo button, his app would ask you how many times you want to flip the coin. And uh, I said to him, well, you know, what do you want to do? And he said, I want to flip it a million times. I, like, let's prove the law of large numbers. 
So with regards to things like SAMR model, I think that's an example of redefinition. Something I couldn't have done in my classroom prior um, was demonstrate law of large numbers in real time using an app that a, a student had actually made, number one. But number two, I gave him a next step of going to code a weighted coin because we always talk about bias in our math classrooms. And he came back the following day and he had a coin that flipped heads 66% of the time, every time. And I said, how did you do that? And he said, I just changed my range from zero to one to zero to two. And so if the computer picks a random number of zero or one, it's heads. And if it's two, it's tails. And so he created uh, a manipulative, if you will, still digital manipulative for my classroom to actually demonstrate bias. And so following that, we had students create weighted dice, um, you know, and spinners that were, were weighted to certain colors and marked cards. And so it was a, a really powerful experience for me um, because they were creating tools, not only to teach themselves, but I could then use moving forward as as projects for for future students and so the rock paper scissors has been really hot this week uh, just i was touring some schools up near ottawa here in ontario working with grade threes who've just been uh given microbit so they have microbit which is a little circuit board that that lights up leds and so we were able to create the game rock paper scissors because they were actually studying mean median and mode and we were trying to uh track data based on that so again it, it's it's about spiraling our math curriculum too, right? I'm able to teach a probability lesson, but also explore data management and number sense at the same time, rather than teach those, those math expectations in isolation. So as those kids are creating a rock, paper, scissors game, uh, they're storing information in variables. So we're having conversations about algebra and we're having conversations about independent and dependent variables, which I can then pull from my, my science yeah. curriculum. Wow. It's yeah, it's and uh, you know, just watching them do it was that was a game changer for me. To, I just have to share this with the larger audience now. Yeah, that's amazing. And and them, what are, was this? Were these college students, high school students? Uh, help me out. Oh, grade seven, eight, so 12, 13 years old. Oh, that's even better story. <laughs> I know, I know, because you know, when you do a course workshop with with educators sometimes it's well it, it is very intimidating i mean math education is very scary and very intimidating too um so i always try to have kids at the table because like i said last week i did it with grade three and so watching great essentially i was watching grade threes uh do my grade eight curriculum because of these tools and technologies it's allowing us to go beyond grade level wow no, that's so, well, it also harkens back to the, you know, there's been some talk and some buzz of, uh, you know, should we have multi-aged classrooms, uh, which I think would be, well, you're proving it, that it could work out to be very good and, and uh, you know, all parties would win. Um, very awesome. I, I'm, I'm kind of just mesmerized by, by that. I added an extra variable and, uh, and I am one of those guys that is intimidated by math. I my math confidence was low. Um, yeah, I, I, I wish, <laughs> wish I had a, the mindset I have now. Well, isn't that the battle cry of everybody old? What I, what I know now, I wish I knew then. Um, so uh, some of the things moving forward, um, if, if you had a, well, no, uh, let me back up. If there's been some places that, um, uh, have in states said, okay, you can either pick a foreign language or you can pick a coding language kind of thing. Uh, right or wrong, your opinion? Ooh, 
Trick question. Um, I'm going to say write, and I'm going to say write because uh, JavaScript, for example, is a universal language. And I mean, I recognize that so is Spanish. Um, but regardless of what your first native tongue would be, JavaScript is still JavaScript, regardless of where you live in the world. Very, okay. So, but play that out. Like, because um, I, I, I think I see where you're going. Um, but if, if, you know, obviously most people would say both, you know, can, can I choose Spanish or can I, use, can I choose, uh, you know, JavaScript or coding this in general? And I think a lot of people would say both, but if you have an either or make your case for why students should choose coding language over a foreign language. Yeah. I think if you have to choose one or the other and I'm making my case for coding, uh, it's because those languages are so universal. So whether you live in South America, whether you live in Canada or whether you live in Japan, writing Python is still writing Python regardless of what language you actually speak first. And so, um, uh, there, there, there are less there. Sorry. There's no such thing as a language barrier per se, when we all study the same syntax across the globe. Yeah, and I think that there'd also be a um, an argument for the fact that we're, you know, uh, we now have devices that have real time language decoding that you can, you know, hear somebody talk to you and it's already translated in real time kind of yeah, thing. And we're awesome. going to be breaking down those barriers and, you know, dual lingo and all these other cool things. So yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I, I totally agree with you. I'm, I wasn't trying to bait you into a bad answer, but I, I would say, question, though. Maybe well, think. <laughs> yeah. well, because I mean, I, I'm, I've been too, like, I'm no, by no means in your realm. You're, you are the sensei. Um, but I'm a big fan of, of promoting, um, you know, at least computational learning and, and coding in, in schools. But when I, but when I get some uh, pushback on the, yeah, well, some people are forced to either or in either a foreign language or a coding language, I, I kind of had the same answer and thoughts as you is that, well, we may be headed towards a time where translation is going to be instant anyway, <clears throat> and, and yet everything is going to be, um, at least have some people should have some knowledge of coding, and 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 I and I think that's probably my next transition. Uh, well, I think just before we do that, I think if, if language is being used as a means to communicate, then there's no stopping anyone in the coding space because they can create tools to better communicate as we move forward. Just like you said, with things like Skype Translate or Duolingo. Well, and that I think that was yeah, yeah, absolutely, because that was my transition point. Like, um, it, even if you don't want to be a coder right? You, you should learn some of the basics of the language. And, and I, like, technically, that's what, you know, most kids that take Spanish one and two or German one or two or French or whatever, they take one and two because they get a little taste of that language. Not as many kids become completely fluent. I think you almost have to have the same mindset of like, look, we don't want every kid to be a programmer by the time that they leave here. We don't expect for them to go to work for Microsoft or Oracle or whomever as soon as they graduate from high school, like some kids just need to dabble and understand some of the basics, correct? A hundred percent. I mean, when I learned to drive, it wasn't because I wanted to be a professional race car driver. Oh, it good point. Because yep. I wanted to, you know, be able to move around the city. But in the same context, uh, I've learned how to put air in the tires, change the oil and put gas in. So it's that's it's fundamental understanding of how devices work if, if our young people are going to engage with them. And if more and more of them are going to be connected to the, to the internet, it's more of a, a understanding, even at the basic level, about how the devices work and to be able to 
I don't want to say think like the device because there's a misconception that computational thinking is, is thinking like a computer and it's not. It's thinking like a computer scientist in terms of problem solving with those tools and technologies. But again, it goes simply back to the exposure piece that kids just have even a basic understanding of how the devices work that they're interacting with all the time. Yeah. No, I, I, that's a good point. Like, well, and my mind was sitting there spinning with the other things that I always feel are important to start covering in school that we don't like it drives me nuts and I'm not bad mouthing any school, but could we, you know, just basics of finance. <laughs> I mean, right. yeah. econ is an elective that stereotypically kids try to avoid or they're like, Oh, I have to take econ, man. I mean, I was raised different. Like I was raised, like I remember when Roth IRA became a thing and my dad set me down to have the talk. And the talk was, you always invest in Roth because it's tax structured where at the back end you're rewarded. And I mean, like these things are obvious to me, but not to a lot of people. And so like, you know, we always spiral into these discussions of why don't they teach this in school? And I'm like, I don't know. And I think now we're, (laughs) we should, or at least again, like, I, I don't expect like using your uh, uh, thoughts is that I don't expect every kid to become a financial planner after taking a basics of personal finance course, but I expect for them to be better consumer savers and investors. Absolutely. That is a fantastic comparison. It's the looking at the student on a whole level as a whole. Yeah. 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 Well, and, and I'm not going to go down this road, but also just the mental health side on some of the things that we should start introducing and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Handle, how to handle life in a digital world needs to be examined and how to have a balance of put down the Instagram. And yeah. Anyway. No, I, even I'm guilty of that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that is, you know what, they're going to write about this, this last five year experiment. I'm telling you, it's, 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 yeah, things are happening so fast that like a, a, a trend a year ago seems like, well, okay, I, I'm looking at them right now. I'm looking at my box of Google Glass. Yeah. Chuckle on that. Yeah, exactly. And, I, you know, the radio this morning was talking about Pokemon Go. I thought, oh, that's so two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that back in, yeah. Swept uh, world by storm for about a week in August. Yeah, I maybe yeah, and somebody coded it. Yeah, and 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 made their money. No, but that's just you. You're, you get a point. But um, yeah, it seems like we're we're moving so fast that that it's at times scary. And I think maybe even a class to again find that balance between. Well, and you know, it is, it's moving so incredibly fast that we will hit a place where software writes software. And that's pushback I've heard too, is we don't need to teach all kids to code because, you know, robots will write code in the future. And it's true, but they'll never empathize, which is a big part of the design thinking process. And so there will always be a human part of this process, right? And, and sure, software will write software, but we still need to transition to that period and we still need to create um, critical thinkers. It's not about coding. It's about problem solving. Um, it's larger than that. No, I, I totally agree. Uh, you really make a great case of we have to have a new way of thinking because of this digital age. 
You know, as a former phys ed teacher, I never once graded my kids based on how many foul shots they could make out of 10 because they'd all would fail. So why was I doing it in my math class with worksheets? It's exactly the same premise. I'm going to let that sink in. <laughs> <laughs> There's a blog post in there somewhere. Yeah, there really is. Uh, wow. Now, okay, so to, to basically wrap up, um, give, give somebody out there through, okay, you're either talking directly to a parent or a teacher, and if you're a student, please participate, but uh, three reasons on why your child or student right now should just start dabbling in the basics of, of coding and computational thinking. Uh, number one would just be uh, sheer interest and exposure. I think that is incredibly important. Just like take an art class, take a history class, take a phys ed class, figure out what you like, because if you're going to be successful in life and industry, and you have to pursue your interests um, in the 21st century. So number one, um, dabble with that, figure out where it fits your passions. If you're a storyteller, figure out if you can code, uh, say a choose your own adventure story. Number two, it's the adaptable skills that are applicable to other things, such as organization, initiative, perseverance. There's a lot of gaming mechanisms attached to coding, so it's intrinsically rewarding. And so I think that kids find that space challenging, but they want to overcome those challenges. And they don't see it as school because it's really an ungraded kind of a territory. And I mean, we could talk grades to our blue in the face. Um, but it's a freedom to fail experience, number two. And I think those are very important adaptable skills to any content area and to, uh, you know, life skills in terms of problem solving. Uh, and number three, of course, I think it's just the basics of being aware of what is happening. And like you said, how quickly things are moving. Um, I think it's an equity piece in terms of being a successful citizen in the 21st century. Doesn't mean you're going to be a professional programmer or a professional race car driver. Um, but if you're going to drive a car or use a computer, you should have a sound understanding of how both of those devices work. Wow. And then to get them started, where are some great resources uh, for either school or at home? Yeah, the Hour of Code, code.org is a phenomenal entry point. Um, doesn't require any prep time on the teacher's part. They have built in lessons already. Kids go about it at their own pace. So it's naturally differentiated and scaffolded. You just need access to devices. Phenomenal entry point. But I do warn people, the Hour of Code is an entry point. It's not a destination. I do hear of people saying, oh, I've done the Hour of Code. You know, we've moved on. Um, when you see coding as a tool, much like a protractor said in math, you'll find entry points to other curriculum areas. So start with the Hour of Code get the basics down, understand what it's capable of. And ultimately we want to put kids then into the sandbox because the hour of code essentially is a bit of a standardized uh, activity where all kids sort of do the same thing in a way. Um, we want to then put them in sandbox tools like Scratch, for example, um, where they can create content for learning without rules, so to speak. With the hour of code, um, you are set, you are asked to follow instructions to solve puzzles and it's a phenomenal entry point, like I said. But ultimately, we want to put kids in that space where they're creating content with a blank canvas using their um, what they've learned about block-based coding or even syntax. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, um, my middle daughter, Anna, was all hyped up and they did the you know same thing, the hour code, and <clears throat> she really enjoyed it. And then there was that now what moment um, afterwards. And so we, we had to yeah, start looking for resources and things like that. So I'm, I'm glad you said that. Uh, and then lastly, tell us all your destinations. Where can we find your book, uh, the, the blog, everything else? 
Oh yeah, Codebreaker is available on Amazon.com, Amazon.ca. It's at Barnes and Noble uh, online as well. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Aspinall. I'm on Instagram at, at Mr. Aspinall, and of course my blog is BrianAspinall.com. I'm also on YouTube, but I mean, you hit the blog and, and you'll see all my social channels there. Awesome, Brian. I appreciate you coming on and uh, taking some time out. I know you're a busy guy this summer, and uh, it, it, I think your message is really super important. So glad we got the chance to share it uh, with with the show here, and hopefully people will follow up and reach out to you and check out the book and the blog and everything else. So again, appreciated, man. Oh, forever grateful for being on, and you know, happy Friday, and let's connect in Chicago next week. All right, man. We'll see you there. All right, talk soon. 